Hey, Scene Vault listeners, are you a NASCAR collector? Well, we've got two great magazines for you. First up, we've got the 75 Greatest Drivers. Last season, NASCAR added 25 drivers to its Greatest Drivers list to celebrate their diamond anniversary, and we partnered with them to help tell their legendary tales. This 116-page magazine is packed with the stories that made each of these drivers the greatest we have ever seen. Printed in full color on glossy paper and delivered to fans inside a poly bag to protect its contents, this magazine will sit on the coffee tables of NASCAR fans for years to come. There are also several different covers to collect, including unique designs for Richard Petty, Dale Earnhardt, Jeff Gordon, and more. We've also got a few remaining copies of the 75th Anniversary Magazine, featuring hundreds of pages of photos, profiles, iconic stories, and much, much more covering every single year of NASCAR. Both of these are shipping in high-quality poly bags to protect your collector's item. Get yours today at dailydownforce.com shop. That's dailydownforce.com shop. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at polepositionmag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey, y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's so, the first deal they built, I bet? No, no. You know, you, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this, this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece-of-crap, cheapo cars and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good. And then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappeared. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And it, it, as he said, it was a game of chicken and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy still when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. <laughs> So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast.
Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by QWare. Maintain excellence. It's about momentum with Mark Martin. I mean, if he starts winning pretty soon, he's 10 feet tall with a machine gun under each arm. I said, and he goes, hey, the way you did that airplane thing was perfect. We got everybody where they needed to get. He said, but I got to show them on the balls. Dale Jr. actually came with guys and took us to his motorhome. And he said, my dad's getting his first look at heaven. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast presented by QWare. And Steve, this week, I wanted to start off and remember a very special person in that garage for a long, long time. Flossie Johnson died on Thursday, and she was the former wife of Junior Johnson. And Steve, she <laughs> she was the mama of that garage oh, for yeah. many people <laughs> for a long time. She was a very, very gracious lady. I always saw her with a smile on her face. I never saw her with a frown. And she had the remarkable ability to remember your name, even if she only met you once. Now, <laughs> she always called me Stevie. Stevie. <laughs> Stevie. <laughs> I'm sure that was influenced by Daryl and his wife, Stevie. But I didn't mind in the slightest because she <laughs> smiled when she said it. Did you ever get to go to one of her race weekend meals? Yeah, there? only one time I never saw so much food or people in all my <laughs> life. Now, who all was there? Was that a You're standard? Name it, they were there at one time or another. I mean, but this time I went, I know it was uh, NASCAR officials, a lot of drivers. Uh, Neil Bonnet was one of them, of course. And uh, just uh, other people from the media. Not too many, though, but some. And uh, we had a very good time. The deal was that Flossie did the biscuits, of course, and the eggs and everything else. Junior did the meat. He cooked all the bacon and sausage. Well, he continued that when he did the breakfast at his shop. That's right. Yeah, he was in charge of the meats. He, huh. he didn't let anybody mess with those. Also, Steve, I wanted to bring something up that was pretty fun this week. Somebody asked Mike Joy on Twitter last week about the earliest Bush Series race to be broadcast. And when he said that he didn't know, somebody tagged me on Twitter. And the earliest one that I knew of was the 1983 Miller Time 300 at Charlotte which was won by my friend, the legendary Sam Ard. Well, that led to a conversation about the footage being lost or rare or whatever. And when I was doing research for second to none, it just so happened that I came across a copy of that race, converted it to DVD, and it had been sitting on my shelf for probably well, close to 20 years now. Uh-huh. So, Steve, I converted this thing to a digital file. I uploaded it to our YouTube channel and actually had a watch party. It was a blast. I'll uh, bet. Jerry Kennan, who was Sam's crew chief that day, he took part in the conversation. And, Steve, the coolest thing about that whole, he said early on in that conversation, that that race on our YouTube channel was the first time that he had seen that event since that day. Really? You could just see the emotion behind that one little yeah. comment on yeah. YouTube. And Steve, Sam Ard's daughter, Joanne, was involved. 
his other daughter, Melinda, was involved. His son, Robert, was there. And also one of his granddaughters commented quite often during oh, the whole thing. That sounds like a great time. Oh, well, I'll tell you what. <laughs> I gotta, I've got to see that. That's oh, it's pretty it. cool. Now, I was going to ask, and you and I have exchanged a couple of messages. In my mind, I remembered you being in the broadcast booth for that race. But when I listened to it, you were not. But you did do a Charlotte Bush Series race at some point. Do you remember when that was? Yeah, 1985. Uh, it was not a national broadcast. It was just a regional one. Okay. I was, I was in, in the booth with uh, Chuck Howard, a uh, local sportscaster, and I was asked to do it on a Saturday morning of the race. <laughs> Were you really? <laughs> uh, I went up there. The only preparation I had was the lineups and some pit notes from the day before. <laughs> I pretty much had to wing it from that point on, but I well, enjoyed it very much. You've never had a problem talking before. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, that is true. And in 1982 and 1983, Sam won the mid Atlantic region title yep. in the weekly division. Right. And this DVD that I had cobbled together also featured the banquet videos for both of those years. Wow. And so that was video that I hadn't seen since I'd last put that VHS tape in the player. (laughs) And then finally second to none was released and we had the press conference at Dover. And after the press conference that day, Mike Massaro from ESPN asked if I would be interested in doing a couple of segments on the history of the Bush series for ESPN. And of course I jumped at that opportunity. And so on this DVD are those two ESPN segments. <laughs> you have found a treasure trove there. Yes, I have. Now on our YouTube channel, I'm going to be putting those up here in the next few days. So I'm going to share the wealth a little bit. I really think you should, because I think you've got something great there. Fans are going to love it. And Steve, the backstory to all that, I'm going to campaign a little bit for Sam Ard in the NASCAR Hall of Fame. I believe that he deserves to be there. And you should, Rick, and I wish you luck, because I think Sam deserves to be there, too. I'm going to join the chorus of voices, each campaigning for their own particular candidate. (laughs) (laughs) There's certainly been no shortage of those. That's what it's all about. Steve, this week in our first segment, we are going to share the third and final installment of our interview with Steve Mill. And this week, Steve, man, we ran the gamut with Steve Mill. He talks about winning four straight races with Mark Martin and Roush Racing in 1993 and his eventual demotion from crew chief and then his departure from that team. Then he moved over to Dale Earnhardt Incorporated. The memories that he had of Dale and then the 2001 Daytona 500, uh, they were very powerful. Absolutely. And there was, there was one moment in particular I know that I remember that I, I just didn't know what to say next. And finally, he was also very honest about the racing accident that left his son Shane paralyzed and his uh, departure from Chip Ganassi Racing. But Steve, <laughs> what Steve Mill is doing now, holy cow, man. <laughs> <laughs> From the sounds of it, I want Steve to build me the kind of vehicle that he's helping put together now. <laughs> it's something right out of science fiction. Oh, really. man. Or, or uh, spy movie. <laughs> <laughs> and Steve, then in our second segment, we are going to take a look at the new nominees for NASCAR Hall of Fame. And I'm going to tell you who you, I mean, 
we're going to discuss calmly and rationally the pioneer nominees as well as those on the modern ballot. Finally, Steve, if you're out there and you're listening to this podcast, if you've seen what we're doing on our YouTube channel, if you've seen what we're doing with Jayski and you consider it to be worthwhile, please consider giving us a little bit of support on Patreon and or PayPal. Every little bit helps us do what we're doing. So support us on Patreon, support us on PayPal, support QWare, our title sponsor, support Brian Kelb, who has been on board with us almost from the very beginning. All the incentives, they're still in place. The commemorative issue of Grand National Scene that we did with Darlington, the classic issues of Winston Cup Scene, the Steve Wade Tracks rookie cards, and finally, the Scene Vault Podcast jacket. All those are available Again, not going to be able to ship all those out until after this lockdown is lifted. But if you can help us out, we would truly appreciate it. You can do all that at patreon.com slash the same podcast. Or if you would rather just do a one-time show of support, you can do that at paypal.me slash the same podcast. Well, in 92, you became Mark. You are Mark Cucci. Yes. What was your relationship with him? Well, as I said, I, I admired what he did as early as, what, 82 at yeah. Nashville? Yeah. And then I saw him, maybe it was 81 at Nashville. In 82, he went out on his own, and I saw how it just broke his heart because everybody used him up. Nobody built him the right kind of cars. They came to Daytona with a, the body was put on it at the wrong frame heights. They had to run it six inches off the ground. It was just a mess. Finally went broke, you know, yeah. tried to do things, uh, drove the four car. G.C. Spencer said he would never make a race car driver, he, you know. And he was just nervous and jerky, but he did go back home and actually went to Milwaukee with a wife and three kids and worked his tail off and came back up through. So, you know, I, I'd, I'd enjoyed watching Mark, read about him in the Speedsport News, and I thought he was a guy you could hook up with and do really well. And he and I always had that relationship, whether I was the general manager or the, or the crew chief. So... When Robin decided to go to, I think, Sabco, uh, he just said, what do you want to do? I said, I'll just do it. And it worked out. It worked out fine. Yeah. <laughs> I'd say it did work out fine. I'd say so. <laughs> 1993, you win four straight yeah. cup races at Watkins Glen, Michigan, Bristol, and Darlington. Those are four very, very different racetracks. And during that same basic time frame, you win five straight bush starts. Yeah. Oh, what did you find that nobody else had? Oh, statue limit, down, statue down limitation. Down, a, lot, <laughs> a lot of downforce. We had, there was no nose height rule. And the lower you got the nose, the more hood angle you put in it, and you can make a ton of front downforce, which was very good because you can make all, basically all you wanted with the rear spoiler, mm-hmm. which... Is still a third of what they're making today, which I think is one of the reasons the racing isn't as good. But yeah. anyway, that, yeah. that's for another time. We got the hood at such an angle that Jack had to machine the distributor housings to get the distributor from hitting the hood. And the other thing was, is uh, if you'll notice the Winn-Dixie car throughout its life with Mark driving it, it's about momentum with Mark Martin. I mean, if he starts winning pretty soon, like his... Dear departed dad, Julian Martin would say, he's 10 feet tall with a machine gun under each arm. <laughs> and, and that's how Mark was. Yeah. So the more we went, the easier it got from Mark 
to know he's going to climb in that window and win the race. You have a flat tire early, didn't bother Mark. You know, you, n- nothing. But hey, we got a plug wire off. No problem. I'll pit. We'll come back up through there. You, you know, it's just yeah. he, he just he just, it's Mark. Mark's incredibly talented. You can tell by all the IROC championships. And he can go anywhere and run fast, and that's what he was doing that year. I think we actually won. We even won Phoenix that fall. I think we won five races that yeah. year. Yeah. And then we went on to win three Watkins Glens in a row. And, you know, a couple of times we were beaten. One time I, I know Wally was good, and Wally had a problem, and we still got around him. And, you know, it was Mark, when you, if you go to certain places with Mark, and he's super confident, and you're going to win races. Yeah. When I covered the Bush Series, I actually had a Mark Martin Bush Series template. Mark Martin won today's race by dot, 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 seconds (laughs) and led dot, 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 laps. (laughs) Oh, gosh, you know. That way it made it just, it it made it easier to to ride after the race. It drove people crazy. (laughs) It's like, you just say, it's Mark. I I remember Bob Labonte swearing he had found out that uh, we had a carbon fiber roof on that car <laughs> and i said bob we actually farm the bodies out on the wind dixie cars i mean everybody would know if if you had it but it was it was, it was a lot of mark well 96 was your last year i think what did it feel like to walk away from that situation particularly with all the success you had oh i hated it huh. yeah I, I can tell you where i was sitting when jack and mark came in and told me what was going to happen yeah I, I, it broke my heart huh. yeah all the things we had done together and I remember, I remember Mark saying, Steve, it's not going to change your and my relationship a bit. I still want you to talk to me on the radio. I said, yeah, okay, I guess, you know, but it just, I hate it. Now, and it needs to be said right up front that Jimmy Finnick is a fantastic person and a great racer. He's proved yeah, it a yeah, thousand yeah. times. Mark and he had a relationship from running in, in uh, up north out of Milwaukee with the ASA car. So Mark had confidence in him. Uh I, it was never explained to me. They just said, here's, Jack just said, here's what we're going to do. And Mark just said, hey, man, it's not going to change anything. So I did continue to talk to him on the radio. We won Sears Point. Jimmy made the call on not pitting at the end and won the race, you know, to his credit. And Jimmy, Jimmy did a fantastic job. But I, Jack wanted me to be more like a general manager or something. I think he was thinking about maybe building a truck team there, which he ultimately built with Max Jones up in uh, Michigan. But I, I, I don't know. I don't know whether Jack... Thought that he had run through me, uh, or Jack thought he could use me for other things. But I do know it was it was Gap and Roush. Wayne Gap knew a lot about drag racing. Next thing you know, it's just Roush. It was Charlie Selix who knew a lot about road racing. Protofab, Roush, Protofab. Next thing you know, it's just Jack Roush. It was, uh, it, was, it, was, it was, it was, yeah, and they, they had both told me that. They said, when, when you've spilled everything out of your brain, you probably won't be worth much. And that's how I feel about it. And, and someone should ask Jack that if, if he's interested, but he may not have done that. But again, going back to the first year, we were both kind of looking at each other going, man, eh, you know. <laughs> I can understand yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you do wind up moving over to Dell Earnhardt Incorporated in 1999. That was a pretty big move. Not only are you changing teams, you're changing manufacturers yeah. the whole nine yards. Yeah. What went into that decision? Uh, we were at Watkins Glen one year, and I said something. Just a group of people in Earnhardt was there. And he said, Neil, you just need to come over and take care of my kid. And I had seen Dale drive late-mile stocks, and 
I didn't think there was much to take care of. He, you know, really? He, yeah, he, he wasn't fast. <laughs> I was super yeah. surprised at how yeah. well he was already doing in 98 on his way to a championship. Right, yeah. Like, I was tickled when he won Watkins Glen because, like, man, this kid's going to be a race car driver, he, yeah. you know. And, uh, yeah, I, I, was, I was wrong about – I guess you can't judge a guy off his late model stock racing, which – once I got to know Dale better in the situation, Dale didn't help. I mean, Dale probably held him back more than he helped him at that yeah. point in their careers, you know. But, uh, yeah, well, I needed a job, you, you know. Uh, trying to think where it was. After New Hampshire in 98, Jack came in and come to town on Tuesdays, and I knew it was coming. He said, man, I got to let you go. I said, I understand, man. He's, a re- you know, he's basically a school teacher. Yeah. You know, he's a he, very smart person. He imparts a lot of knowledge into you, takes his time and shows you things. He said, you're the worst student I ever had. And that didn't hurt because I knew I was because I didn't always buy in. Right. He, he, you know, some people bought in and really sucked up. And I was just going to be me, you know. And if yeah. I thought something was messed up or if, thought, if I heard Bud Moore had 400 jets in his carburetor, I would bring it up. Not to say that you're messed up, but say that maybe there's more to it, you know. So, okay, and, and uh, on down the road we went, and uh, see, Mark had already gone to Charlotte with Jimmy. So there was kind of a skeleton deal going on up there. I guess we had LePage and Johnny Benson. Yeah. And uh, it just wasn't going well. And we could tell we were just outliers at that time. So eventually when I left the next year, I think he moved everything down there. But anyway... Uh, I, I don't really know what the reason was, but I needed a job. I mean, I got a wife and kids, you know. And Earnhardt had talked to me a couple of times, talked to me at Daytona. Man, you got to come see my new shop. This thing's been Earn- And Jack's standing right there. He, you know, Earnhardt knew what he was doing, you know. So I called. Yeah. And I said, man, I guess it's time to come do this. And he said, all right, come on down here. And that's what we did. And that was a, that was a difficult situation. Yeah. I yeah. can't imagine being part of that team in 2001. What do you remember about those few months? Uh, you know, and the, and the status, the attitude of the team afterwards. Well, I remember going to, I remember practicing it. I think I was spotting for Michael, or at least talking with Michael. He had his own crew chief and all, and they were doing well. And Michael came on the radio and said, I just found something. At Daytona, I mean, you, you know, but he did, and to this day, Michael's a fantastic plate racer. And I thought, well, okay, so we went out there and, and won the race, and I mean, super excited for people like Buffy and all these guys yeah. that had worked so hard. Oh, you know, and yeah. Ron Ron yeah. Hornaday was an absolute stud race car driver, and Michael had to go in there and take his place. And why did Michael take his place? Because Earnhardt liked him. I mean, I, I remember. Ron Hornaday driving out as I was driving in at the shop, and Hornaday had tears in his eyes. I said, what's going on? He said, I just got fired. I said, now just wait a minute. And I went inside, saw Dale, and, you know, I wasn't really at Dale's level or anything like that, but he said, just shut up. He said, I know what I'm doing. And we went to Daytona, and sure enough, he knew what he was doing. So we go to Victory Lane, and here comes Schrader. I thought, well, Schrader and Mikey, you know, he always called him Mikey, and I said, he's going to congratulate him. He grabs him like this and talks to him. And Michael just, I mean, all the euphoria drained out of him. I mean, like that. Well, obviously, Kenny had seen the condition that Dale was in, and it was horrible. So we're like, oh, gosh. So Steve Peterson came and got me. He said, you have got to help us find Dale Jr. We've got to get him to the hospital. 
So I left Victory Lane. I'd already, I was already out of Victory Lane, walking down Pitt Road when, when Steve got me and found Junior. And uh, he went over to the hospital. It's a done deal. We're tearing down engines. And, you know, we knew what was going on before Mike made the announcement. Dale came and got us. And Dale, Dale Jr. actually came and got us and took us in his, to his motorhome. And uh, he said, my dad's getting his first look at heaven. Uh, oh boy <laughs> it's hard to say i mean i'm chilled up here you, you know and i don't say that trying to tell somebody a secret i say that out of respect for dale earnhardt jr who marched on uh, not a lot of people in his position would have done that a lot of people in the company couldn't do that so nascar came over and said you're through tearing down, get out of here. It's because we're tearing down two cars, you know. And that was all the way to the crankshaft. And, uh, but they had already checked everything, but, yeah. you know. They said, just get out of here as quick as you can. Yes, sir. So we loaded our stuff and got out and got in the airplane, and uh, it was uh, three Delta Echo I was flying in. And uh, they said, just pull out. You know, the line was 50 airplanes long at that time, you know. And they said, just go to go to this taxiway, go to this taxiway, go to the end of the runway, tell us when you're ready to go. So they, I mean, they just got us out of there. And we all just went home like in a daze. You know, we, went, we just went to bed like, you know, like anything. Your house burns to the ground, your kid dies, or whatever happens, you, you, you know, you, you don't really want to take that one in. When you woke up the next morning, it's like, man, this was real. And what was a real wake-up was when you got to the shop the next morning. The mm. flowers and the wreaths and yeah. the people and yeah. the banners and the cardboard signs, you know, just... Is unbelievable, and what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? We're going to do. The good thing about NASCAR racing is you live by a schedule. They won't hold it up for you if you're not ready, and they're, and they're not not going to do yeah. it early and sneak it by you. So your whole life is compartmentalized, right. like it was at Petty Enterprises 50 years ago, and it, that was always a comfort to me. So we had racing, and then uh, do we go to Rockingham next? Yes. Yeah. Jeez. Wow. Yeah, everybody was holding up the three, and we won with Park at yeah, Rockingham. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Sure did. Yeah, that was pretty unreal. And then, and then it got, it was okay for a year or two, but there wasn't, when they came to put helicopter, or when they came with helicopters to put air conditioning units on top of Dale Jr.'s new shop at DEI, Earnhardt was up on the roof directing them. When the when the the big horses that Budweiser came to town on a, with on a truck that they gave to Earnhardt, Earnhardt told them how to feed them. When the fence was being built, Earnhardt was welding the fence up. You, you know what I mean? I, I see your point. I see your point. You know, I, I remember one time we showed up at the airport and I got a group going to Daytona for winter testing, and Paul Andrews has a group going to Atlanta to the Lockheed Wind Tunnel, and I said, "What plane are you taking?" The Kinger. I said, but we're taking the Kinger. Yeah, can't do that. So, so we kind of worked it out where we took a skeleton crew and dropped them off in Atlanta and then went to Daytona and came back and got the rest of them, okay? So that's not the real story. Then when we got back, and we were gone two or three days, when we got back, Earnhardt, Mail, yeah, come over here to my office. Okay, so I go over there. It's me, Tony Urie, because the eight cars who I was going with, Paul Andrews, a couple other guys. Yeah, this. Here's what we're going to do. Here's how this is going to work out. That's going to. 
He said, but let me tell you something, Mill, right here in front of these guys so they know. You don't ever change a schedule on my airplane. Those are my airplanes. Those are not your airplanes. Hmm. You're not me. So don't, don't even open your mouth in the office at the airport. I said, yes, sir, man, I'm sorry, but I was just trying to get everybody where they needed to go. I don't care. It's my airplane. Mill, okay, you guys get out of here. Like, when you just get out of here. I, I turn, he goes, Mill, you stay here. You sit down right there. I said, well, I'm going to get another chewing. <laughs> so I'm like, yes, sir. I said, and he goes, hey, the way you did that airplane thing was perfect. We got everybody where they needed to get. He said, but I got to show them on the balls. I said, yes, sir, buddy. I'm with you. As long as I know it's a con, I'm good. And that, that's the biggest single thing I remember about Dale Earnhardt was he was a bad son of a gun. <laughs> but, it, but he would come back and buy an ice cream cone, you know. At what point did you decide to step away from NASCAR? When Chip Ganassi fired me. Well, that would I would, would do love it. to still be there. Yeah, <laughs> I, I miss it. it every day. Yeah. Okay. But what happened is my son Shane got hurt real bad at Terre Haute. And uh, he had a basically a to get all he could get, he has, only has one hand that works, but to even get to that was three years in a place called the Shepherd Center in Atlanta. The first year when I was still working for Chip, you know, we won, won two of the biggest races and four races, races all together in 2010. We're rolling. I mean, Chip is loving it. We're building our own cars. This is fantastic. So the next year we get engines from RCR, which was a little bit problematic, but it was okay, and we were horrible. Well, the biggest reason we were horrible, I don't want to paint myself as being the linchpin of the whole place, but I felt like I let the company down because when my kid was injured like that and he was going through this therapy and I needed to be in Atlanta a day a week or so with my wife and him, there's no way I had the right amount of focus. But at the time, I didn't realize it. We just ran horribly. I think we were 21st and 24th in points. Broke a lot of didn't explode engines, but broke a water pump and broke a fitting. But, but uh, other than that, we, we also didn't run good until they did break. So it was my fault. I'm, I'm the guy that's in charge. You know, I'm a guy that they were happy about when we won four races the year before, including Daytona in the Brickyard. And Juan won a race, which was fantastic because yeah. he had threatened so many times at the Brickyard and New Hampshire. And, you know, so it was, you know, it was a great year. 2011 was a nightmare. And that's because I wasn't aware i wasn't doing a good job of fixing things because my mind was in atlanta you know I, I messed that up i deserved to get fired i really did i did a really really poor job and I, I knew i was 58 years old and probably couldn't get a job and i wasn't a degreed engineer but maybe i'd get something going on and i went to daytona in 12 and talked to some people but nobody had any interest and nobody's ever called since <laughs> steve you've mentioned shane yes sir and you experienced so many things in racing yeah but you went through things with shane that, yes, sir. that no person should ever have to deal with what did you learn from that experience and what are you still learning you, you go through exactly what they say you're going to go through you, you know i can remember tearing pictures off the wall i was so mad at the world and god and anybody who had any involvement in this and then but i went for a you know i, I remember lauren talking to lauren Rainier. Yeah, Shane was hurt in October of, of 10. And I remember being in Lauren Rainier's office and he said, man, how's Shane doing? This is like the following January. I said, well, he's good. They're going to teach him all. He's going to get better. He's got his, he had his thumb moving at that time. That yeah. was it. And he could stand up without passing out, which is a really big thing. 
And I said, yeah. He said, well, what do you look for? I said, oh, man, I just hope they get him where he's standing up and moving around a little bit by the Hoosier 100 because I really, he had won the year before. I really want to take him back there and him be proud of himself. That's insane. He's got a C4 to C7. I mean, he's yeah. lucky to have a hand. He's lucky. The, when he first came to CMC in Charlotte, they, he was on a ventilator. They said, just take him home. He'll never even breathe on his own. Just take him home. He, wow. I said, no, no, let's, you know, Felix had some influence at that hospital and got him right in. I said, no, 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 let's do this. And at that time, his brain injury was so bad, he would howl like a coyote when the sun went down. I mean, that's how bad his brain was. And, and, and I'm like, you know, two months later, well, we'll just, you know, we'll go to the Hoosier 100 and see what's up. And I, I told the doctor the morning after, he said, you know, we've got to put 18-inch rods in his neck. Because his back is broken so bad, his spinal cord hurt real bad. Okay. I said, now, they were, IndyCar was talking to him about running these Indy Lights cars. I said, so make sure it doesn't prevent him from being in a semi-laid-down position. And the doctor looked at me like I was nuts. And I, didn't have, I didn't have a clue. I was in such denial that it was unreasonable. So, you know, in, in the, unfortunately, other p- children have been hurt, kids have been hurt, and men have been hurt. And anybody I know, I say, hey, look, man, you're going to go through a lot of things. One is, you're not going to believe them. Then you're going to be mad at him. Then you're going to be mad at yourself. And then you're going to be mad at God. And then eventually you just kind of work your way through it, I guess. You know, I t- Kyle Petty talked to me and he said, man, I cry every day for Adam. He said, it's not going to get better till you're dead. I said, yeah, yeah, I know, man. I, I know that. But that ain't going to happen to me. Yeah, you know, yeah, I mean, yeah. not, not, I'm, I'm one tough son of a gun. And, and I still struggle with it every day. That's the biggest thing I learned is you don't get over it. Now, what are you doing today? Yeah. I work for a company in uh, Greensboro as a, a prototype builder. We build um, stealth vehicles that can find uh, radiation, anthrax, Ebola. Wow! They have they I have uh, uh, all kind all kinds of uh, bomb making materials. Uh, it has a, a system that pulls air into it, and then it goes through these instruments, and it'll pop up on a screen. We also have. Uh, the most advanced in the world, uh, facial recognition. Yeah, so, so and they go Holy predominantly, we, we, they don't sell them to China because they're going to copy them, but they're all over the Middle East. Uh, TSA uh, has them. Um, they look like a bread truck or whatever they want it to look like, a laundry truck, and they'll park them outside a ball field, and everybody that prays by gets their eye checked or their face checked, and it'll pop up if they're a bad guy. There's a drone that flies off it, and they can find Holy the bad guys in the stadium where they're sitting just to keep an eye on them. The bomb-making stuff is incredible. Uh, d- drugs, cocaine. Now, we're not going to get shot for— No, no, no. It's all good. Sure, this is not the CIA. <laughs> uh, well, they're in, they're, they, they, I bet. they have vehicles. He can't say. Yeah, no. we, we can't say. <laughs> but it's very interesting. I, I would be bored with the production. But I really enjoy the prototype work. It's fun because somebody says, "Could you? You thinking about this? Oh yeah!" So you get to machine a little something and make a bracket, and you know it's like building the coolest race car in the world. But the deadlines are so much further out. Yeah. You know, I mean, we grew up and we were testing the first week in December at Daytona, and Christmas is off, and then first week of January, and you know you got to go, 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 barely making it. But in this, in in the real world, I have found out that you can push a deadline back a little bit, and that's something of a relief. So what kind of vehicles are these? You mentioned the bread truck, but I, I kind of envision tanks and no, you know, no nothing <laughs> stuff no like armament. that. No really? armament. Okay. Yeah, no armament. Okay. No armament. There's a uh, hospital that involves uh, 24 
trailers that are all hooked together. Yeah. And uh, they go to uh, a lot of places in the Middle East because where the people are getting hurt is so far from the city. You know, in Vietnam, they could throw them in a helicopter, and 10 minutes later, they're, yeah. they're, in, they're getting looked at. Well, they're dying before they can get to the hospital. So we built these hospitals. Like I said, it's 27 or 24 tractor trailers, and they can do everything. I mean, <laughs> they operate right there. They do, they do everything, you know. And there's things you have to think about that you wouldn't normally think about. What do you do with body parts? What, do you, what about the blood? You know, what about any fluid? You know what I mean? So you're like, oh, wow, I never thought about that. We've got to build another trailer to take care of all that stuff. You, you yeah. know, one trailer's a morgue. You know, oh, I mean, wow. it's just like, man, I would have never thought of that. You know, but yeah, but that's the kind of stuff we do. I am flabby. There's a lot out there that we You've learned something from the podcast. <laughs> Steve Mill, 007. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Hello, Scene Vault Podcast listeners. This is Eric Quinn from QWare. Again, I just want to say thank you for listening to the Scene Vault Podcast and Rick and Steve and the wonderful interviews they've been doing with the folks from NASCAR history, the drivers, the crew chiefs, the people that made it all happen over the years. At QWare, we are very proud to be a part of this podcast and being able to bring it to you, especially at a time when you have limited entertainment options. We hope that you're enjoying it, and we hope that you get a chance to check us out at QWareCMMS.com. QWare is one of the most powerful, simple-to-use, computerized maintenance management systems on the market for your facility's maintenance team. Whatever your business, check us out. QWareCMMS.com. We're here to help your team maintain excellence. From all of us at QWare, we hope that you and your family stay safe and healthy. Now let's get back to the podcast. Thanks for listening. Steve, Mark Martin drove five races for Morgan McClure Motorsports in the second half of the 1983 season, and the results weren't exactly spectacular. His best finish in those five races was a 10th, two laps down at Talladega. And, of course, that was in the very, very, very early days of Morgan McClure Motorsports. After those few races, that's when he kind of limped back home to Arkansas and that's where he basically had to pick up the pieces of what was left of his career. And apparently from what Steve Mill said in passing, G.C. Spencer, who was working for that team at the time, he said after that deal that Mark Martin would never make a race car driver. <laughs> first things first, who was G.C. Spencer? Well, G.C. Spencer was an independent driver. Had about a 20-year career that ended back in 1977. Now, he never won a race, uh, not even close. But he was very popular in the Bristol area, as I remember, because he was from Jonesboro, Tennessee. And he was also a very, very funny guy, quite a character. Now, what he's doing commenting on Mark Martin, I don't really know about all that. But that's who he was. So he lived in Jonesboro. That's correct. Yeah. Well, here's a little piece of trivia for you. When my dad went to Vietnam, my mom and I came back from Japan, and that's where we lived. We lived in Jonesboro, Tennessee. I'll be darned. I didn't know that. Oh, yes. So I don't know if Mark was actually aware of that criticism in particular, but you know that he had to have had doubts about his career because the way that things worked out, he basically 
lost his shirt yeah. and had to go back to Arkansas to kind of rebuild everything. That's what he had to do. That's what he did, by the way. He yeah. persevered. He persevered. He raced on the ASA and other circuits out in the Midwest where he enjoyed success. And that's, again, where he could do his best work. Then Steve Mill becomes the crew chief after Robin Pemberton moves over to Sabco Racing. And in 1993, I know that you remember this because that was when I was first getting into the sport professionally. He and Mark Martin won four straight Winston Cup races at Watkins Glen, a road course, Michigan, a super speedway, Bristol, a short track, and then Darlington. And and, (laughs) Darlington is just Darlington. You can't call it an intermediate. (laughs) You can't call it a super speedway. Certainly can't call it a short track. So Darlington is just Darlington. So those were four very different racetracks. And during that same time frame, Mark also won five straight Bush Series starts. Five straight. Yes. I'm telling you, it got to be routine with the media. Mark is in this race. Oh, I think I'll take a nap and I can write this when it's over because I know who's going to win. <laughs> Mark was the Kyle Bush of his day. I mean, he was winning races on many different circuits and so many of them in consecutive order. That was crazy, man. When I asked Steve what the team had found that nobody else had, I don't know if you noticed it, but he got very quiet there (laughs) (laughs) for a few seconds. And Steve, that's 27 years ago now. Yeah. So the statute of limitations has long since passed. (laughs) Even so, when a crew chief finds something, I don't think he's ever going to tell anybody what it is (laughs) until the day he passes on, you know? After a long pause, and I don't know how long it was, it was probably three or four seconds, but he did finally say that one of the things that they had was a lot of downforce, but also he talked about having Mark Martin in the driver's seat. And he said that Mark Martin's big thing was momentum. And once Mark Martin found some success, get him into victory lane once, and he's 10 feet tall with a machine gun under each arm. He's invincible. Racing people talk about momentum a lot. Yeah. Call it the big mo. It can be momentum for a team. It can be momentum for a driver, even momentum on the racetrack. Well, Steve, momentum goes both ways. And Steve Mill served as Mark Martin's crew chief in 92, 93, 94, 95. They went a total of 13 races together. But in 1996, Mark gets shut out of victory lane. And that's it for Steve as Mark's crew chief. Well, we've talked about this so many times in the past yeah. about a crew chief and the driver splitting up or, or a team and a crew chief splitting up and the many, many reasons for it. And there are many of them. But in this case, is a perfect example of what I think is the most prominent reason for a split. And it is three words, lack of production. That's yes. exactly what it was here. And Steve was not exactly comfortable with that move. He told us that when Mark and Jack came in to tell him what was going to go down, that he remembers where he was sitting when it actually happened. He was moved into a different role at Roush Racing. Jimmy Finnig takes over as Mark's crew chief. And Steve did make a point to say that he thought that Jimmy was an awesome crew chief and that he was still on the radio with Mark. But Steve, you know that it had to hurt. Yeah. That he was not going to be calling the shots anymore. No, it can't be pleasant for anybody to uh, basically lose that type of job and have, uh, you know, fewer responsibilities. The writing was probably on the wall 
Steve winds up getting let go by Jack. And just like Jeff Burton, Steve Mill made this huge jump from Ford to Chevrolet and from Roush Racing to another prominent Chevy team. And this time, Steve went over to Dale Earnhardt Incorporated. And so Steve talked about Dale's leadership. And again, I can just see Dale Earnhardt Sr. on top of the DEI Garage Mahal there in Mooresville directing that helicopter <laughs> that's dropping in the new AC unit for Dale Jr.'s shop, telling everybody how they were going to feed the Clydesdales, building the fences and all <laughs> that. And Steve, to me, that said a lot about Dale Earnhardt's personality and also his very distinct leadership style. Well, you said the word personality, and that was the strongest thing that Dale Earnhardt had going for him. The force of his personality made him a leader. And I could tell you some stories about it, but this is one I think you'll really enjoy. It happened at Bristol. Bristol was trying something new. They were trying all-day qualifying. You could qualify from this time in the morning until this time in the afternoon. No kidding. Anytime wow. you wanted it. And, you know, Cars weren't going out very fast. Guys were waiting for cloud to come over the sun or something like that. Well, Dale did his fairly early. And long about late afternoon, he was just standing around, and he came up to me, and he said, you want to go to dinner? I said, sure. So I turned around and started walking to his hauler because I figured, you know, they're going to feed me out of the goodie box, <laughs> sandwiches, <laughs> stuff like that. Dale said, Wait, where are you going? And I said, I'm going to have dinner. He said, no, no, come with me. We got in this passenger car, left the track, never stopped at the gate that you had to stop at if cars were on the track, you know, <laughs> and go out, never stopped. That gate was open. Went yeah. into Bristol, <laughs> had dinner at a Chinese restaurant, came back, and Rick, <laughs> I'm not kidding you, as he made the turn to go up the ramp to the gate at the turn, that gate opened up just all, almost automatically and let him yeah. go right in, and he parked. And I said, wait a minute. I looked and said, do you realize what just happened? You and I went through that gate, never had to wait or anything, and there was no cars on the track at the time you went across, so we got a free ride both ways. And Dale said, nah, nothing to it. And he said, I just tipped him off in the hauler at what time I was going to be there and leave the gate open for me, and that's what they did. He had gone to <laughs> contacted NASCAR in the hauler and told him when to open the gate. And yeah. they did. That was incredible. But that told me right there that his influence in the garage area at every track was tremendous. And that was the force of his personality that did that. Steve, I'm back on the fact that Dell Earnhardt Sr. sought you out and asked you to go to dinner with him at a yeah. Chinese restaurant. We, we talked about it. Dinner. We <sighs> talked about everything but racing. We yeah. talked politics. We talked religion. We talked relationships. Uh, everything but racing and he was just he was on target with what he was speaking about wow that is incredible steve mill was also there at dei for the 2001 daytona 500 and again his is a perspective of an event that was one of the most devastating in nascar history and i don't know about you but when he talked about Dell Earnhardt Jr. coming back from the hospital, taking the team to his motor coach, and saying that his dad was getting his first look at heaven, I don't know that I've ever had that powerful a reaction in church. Hmm. I can imagine. I can just imagine how powerful that was. When 
Steve was talking and he was telling us about that moment. Uh, you and I got real quiet. And I know for one, I didn't know what to say next. That was pretty powerful. I was just, I was just like you, Rick, just like you. Uh, Steve then talked about the aftermath of that race and how for a while things seemed to be headed in the right direction. But without Dell Sr.'s leadership, things kind of fell apart but a little bit. That, that was the key element right there. Without Dale Sr.'s leadership. And it could not sustain itself without the force of his personality directing everything. And we've talked about Dale's leadership. But to me, the best story that he talked about was the one about the airplanes. He's got a group going to Daytona for testing. Paul Andrews has another group going to the wind tunnel in Atlanta. They showed up at the airport expecting to use the same airplane. Apparently, Steve gets everything sorted out. And they go into this meeting later on and Dell senior pretty much blesses Steve out mm. in front of everybody. Then asks Steve to stay after everybody else leaves. And Steve of course is thinking that he's going to get blessed out some more. And Dell looks at him and said, man, you did the right thing, but <laughs> I just had to show everybody who's boss. <laughs> <laughs> now you think about this for a minute. And when it comes to leadership, Rick, here Dale goes, and he lets Steve have it in front of the entire crew, correct? Oh, yeah. But yeah. he does not want Steve to lose any confidence in himself, and that's why he told him, I had to do what I had to do, but you were right. He said, that, that to me, is what a leader does, keeps the confidence going in his employees. Steve, you were a leader at Winston Cup scene for a lot of years, how would you describe your leadership style I, that I can remember? You never, ever, ever went down the road of embarrassing somebody in front of other people. No, what was I, your leadership style like? I, well, it was very relaxed, as you well know, Rick. <laughs> one of the things, one of the things that I had going for me as a leader was that the, the people that I had were all very talented, very motivated. And I did not have to do much except maybe steer them in the right direction and maybe solve a few problems here and there. But as far as getting people who wanted to work, who loved to work, and who did that work so well, I had an army of those yeah. kinds of people. And you were one of them. I had an army of those kind of people. That makes it pretty much easy on a leader. All he's got to do is point, and somebody else will go for it. Steve Mill eventually moved over to Chip Ganassi Racing, but in October of 2010, his son Shane was paralyzed in a horrible, horrible USAC yeah. Silver Crown crash in Terre Haute, Indiana. And Steve, as a father, I cannot begin to even imagine the nightmare of seeing one of my sons or relatives injured like that. And, of course, his attention is going to be focused on that rather than uh, anything course, having to do with NASCAR. Of course it is. It's got to take precedence over just about everything. And Steve said that he wound up being let go by Chip Ganassi, and he hasn't worked in the sport since. And Steve, like a lot of us on the outside looking in, he does seem to miss it. Yeah, he does, but I can't fault him for that. I mean, why could he not miss it? You know, all the achievements that he had was so much well-known people. That's a tough thing to give up. Well, that being said, Steve today is working <laughs> for a company in Greensboro, North Carolina that builds prototype stealth vehicles that 
can go out and hunt for radiation and anthrax and all those kinds of scary things. They're equipped with this very high tech facial recognition thing. And at one point I actually asked Steve, I said, is it okay for us to know about this? Are we going to get shot? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's top secret stuff, you know? Yeah. They're building hospital compounds for combat zones in Afghanistan and Iraq. So that was pretty eye opening in and of itself. Well, you got to say that given everything that's going on with where Steve is now, his work is very noble. I later texted him and said, do you have any pictures of the vehicles that you're building that we could use in the YouTube videos that we're doing? And he says that when he goes to work, he actually has to turn in his cell phone. Really? He couldn't share any kind of pictures or examples or anything. This is some 007 stuff, man. (laughs) Steve, follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at SpeedwayTSJ.Etsy.com. That's SpeedwayTSJ.ETSY.com. Steve, again this week, our boy Brian. He's, a, he's <laughs> was, amazing. He's was amazing. tweeting out some amazing stuff and I wish that I could get my hands on more stuff that he had because he has an absolute museum in his inventory. You're exactly right. It is absolutely stunning sometimes. Some of the stuff he I've forgotten a lot of that stuff at a season on a teaser. Oh, I remember that now. Man, that's yeah. really fun. That's really fun. Again, follow Brian on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at Speedway tsj.etsy.com that's speedway tsj.etsy.com the list of nominees for next year's nascar hall of fame class is definitely a departure from how things have been done in the past there are now two basic categories the modern era and also pioneers, two modern era, and one pioneer will get into each class, plus a separate landmark recipient. And this time around, Dell Earnhardt Jr., Jeff Burton, and Carl Edwards joined those who were already on the ballot. Neil Bonnet, Harry Gant, Harry Hyde, Larry Phillips, Ricky Rudd, Kirk Shelmerdine, and Mike Stefanik are on the modern era ballot. And then... On the list of pioneers, Jake Elder, Jake Suitcase Elder, and Banjo Matthews joined Red Farmer, Herschel McGriff, and Ralph Moody. And almost as soon as these nominees hit Twitter, hit social media, uh, the talk started. And people were saying, well, where is Smokey Eunuch? Where is Ray Hendrick? Where is their favorite driver? It always, it always their does. Person? And the fact of the matter is you're never going to make everybody happy. Never, never. Everybody has their own special area of expertise or interest or whatever. They're going to have their favorites. The thing about this list is there's nobody on this list who is undeserving. True. And that's just the fact of the matter. That's a done deal. Write it down in stone. Everybody is deserving. Now, are there people that are not on the ballot that deserve to be in? Yeah. Yes. Uh Uh-huh. Sam Ard. Sam Ard's not on the ballot, but 
that's not going to stop me from supporting who is on the ballot. One day Sam will be in and he will be there with Jack Ingram. That's the way that it should be. Not going to be the way that it is next year. And as disappointing as that may be, that's, that's fine. He'll get in someday. Now, also different this year <laughs> is that my good friend, my pal, my podcasting partner in crime, my mentor. You Steve forgot Wade, to say media icon. <laughs> <laughs> media icon, Steve Wade, yeah. as a recipient of the Squire Hall Award for NASCAR Media Excellence. Steve, you actually have a vote this year for the Pioneer selection. Is that I correct? Do. I do. My own opinion as to one reason why NASCAR created the, the, the Pioneer Division was probably the concern that some of, of the Pioneers, the men in the early years of NASCAR who helped shape the sport, were being left out by yeah. so many yeah. modern yeah. era candidates eligible for the Hall of Fame. So they created the Pioneer Division to help rectify that a little bit. Well, that's actually one of the very first suggestions that I had for Buzz McKim and Winston Kelly, almost out of the box, is create a veterans committee that can take a look at people like Raymond Parks, take a look at people like Ed Otto, take a look at people like Smokey Eunuch or whoever, because the fact is today's generation of media might not necessarily be as familiar. I think you're 100% right. With those folks. And please note that other halls of fame for other sports have yes, yeah. pioneer veterans voting. Now, Steve, first of all, take me through the process. Were you a part of selecting the nominees or were those basically just given to you? Well, we were given a list. Vote? We were given a list of uh, eligible competitors for the pioneer division, which meant that the rules state that uh, they had to have their career started before 1961. That was a pretty big list with just about every guy on that list deserving. But we could also either strengthen our belief and pitch certain competitors to, to make that Hall of Fame, or we could even select new ones and bring that up in a discussion. Now, the discussion was held as a teleconference, video conference, of course, because of the virus. So we, we were originally supposed to meet and to, you know, do it all in person, but we couldn't do it that way. So we just talked over the phones and over the video and mentioned the people on the list and tossed in our support or made comments about it. When is the actual voting and what will go into that? Will that be the same basic process? Yeah. Yeah, pretty much the same basic. When they let us know, I don't know exactly what the vote is, to be honest with you. But uh, we will go through the same thing, and it will be on the five nominated competitors. Steve, as I mentioned a few moments ago, new to this year's Modern Era ballot are Dale Earnhardt Jr., Carl Edwards, and Jeff Burton. They joined several people who were already on the ballot or had been on the ballot in years past. Two of them get in. And you can write this down now. Dale Earnhardt Jr. is going to be one of them. And I think very, very, very strongly that he's deserving. You are not the only one who's going to say those words. Steve, you know as well as I do that on social media, keyboard warriors talk about him riding his daddy's coattails. He doesn't have the record of success that his daddy does. Nobody has 
Dale Earnhardt's track record of success. He was a once-in-a-lifetime talent, personality, icon. People say that Dale Earnhardt Jr. would never have gotten his ride if it had not been for his last name. I'm going to say this. If his last name had been Smith or whatever, people would look at his track record of success and say, yeah, sign him up. He's deserving of the Hall of Fame. Got 26 wins, got two championships in the Bush Series, got two Daytona 500s. So that name Earnhardt has been both a blessing and a curse. And I'll go out on this limb a little bit further and say that the same people who insist that it's a crime that Harry Gant, Neil Bonnet, and Ricky Rudd aren't already in the Hall of Fame, they're the same people that saying that Dale Earnhardt Jr. don't belong in the NASCAR Hall of Fame. Look at the numbers. Look at the numbers. Look at the numbers. Dale Earnhardt Jr. won eight more cup races than Neil and Harry. He won three more than Ricky Rudd. And also, Dale Earnhardt Jr. won two Daytona 500s. And the best finishes for Harry, Neil, and Ricky combined in the Daytona 500 were a couple of third-place showings, Neil in 1980 and Ricky in 1981. Listen, there was no bigger a Harry Gant fan than I was before I got into the sport. I respected Neil Bonnet as much as anybody I've ever respected in this sport, both for what he did on the racetrack and in the broadcast booth. Ricky Rudd, who can possibly forget the things that he's done in the sport, the tough guy that he was, the Ironman that he was, the races that he won after getting hurt at Daytona, and then the big Martinsville race where he was all but passed out. Not taking anything away from any of those guys because I hold them up on a pedestal just like I hold several people up on a pedestal. But the fact of the matter is you can't say that they're deserving and Dale Earnhardt Jr. is not. Well, Rick, I do agree with you. You make a very good case for Dale Jr. I would also like to add to your case that how many times did he win the most popular driver? Only I think Bill Elliott is the only one that's ever won more. (laughs) Well, it is the Hall of Fame. That's true. And fame is popularity. Right. No matter how you look at it, fame and popularity are intertwined, and you cannot ignore that. Given your strong case, I certainly wouldn't be upset if Dale Jr. did make the Hall of Fame. Now, the remainder of the candidates is a very, very tough call, in my opinion. There's some things that I like about every one of them that I think gets them into the Hall of Fame. And incidentally, Rick, I think they all are going to make it eventually. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I'm looking at it from a different way, and I just want the listeners to bear with me for a moment. I am of the opinion that we cannot let the NASCAR Hall of Fame turn into the NASCAR Cup Series Hall of Fame. It's supposed to be NASCAR. The reach is supposed to be all through the series that has run for all these years. That would prompt me to say that Larry Phillips deserves a shot in the Hall of Fame. Five-time weekly racing series champion, right? Uh Five times and he wasn't on the major stage that doesn't make any difference it was still nascar and mike stefanik is the same way as far as i'm concerned i really took this to heart when discussing the pioneer candidate because i supported ray hendrick for the very same reason so it's not going to upset me that of all the good good candidates that we have in the modern era i'm not going to be bothered in the slightest If one of those enshrined does not come from the Cup Series, I'll be happy. 
Okay. Now I hear you say all that, but what I don't hear is any kind of support from anybody from the Bush series. Okay. We're, we're, <laughs> okay. <laughs> you're killing me, Small. I'm with you're you. You're absolutely I'm with killing you. me. <laughs> so you got Larry Phillips, you got Ray Hendrick, you got Mike Stefanik. Who do you think gets in? The people that are left on the ballot other than Dell Earnhardt Jr., who do you think gets in? I look at that list, and it's going to be, gosh, it's going to be so hard oh, yeah. To, pre- yeah. to predict. And I really think, though, and I'm going to say this honestly, I really think that if the committee thinks about this long and hard and tries to make the NASCAR Hall of Fame something more than a NASCAR Cup Series Hall of Fame, I think Larry or Mike, either one of them, can make it. I'm trying to emphasize here, I know NASCAR is making every effort to spread out the people that enshrines the Hall of Fame, try to get as many of them as possible in that are not in the Cup Series. They don't want to isolate the Hall of Fame into one series. And if they think that way, when the voting occurs, I think Larry and Mike have a very good chance. Okay. All right. You heard it here first. Now, the Pioneer ballot, the one that you actually have a vote for, in all seriousness, I'm not going to put you on the spot and ask you who you're voting for. Don't know that you'd tell me anyway. (laughs) But what are you looking for exactly when it comes to checking that box? Well, what you're looking for is, first thing you have to realize is every one of those nominees deserves to get in. That makes the job so much harder. Now, the next thing I look for is singular achievement. Is there any one of these guys that stands head and shoulders above the other with his achievements? Some of them have multiple championships. Some of them have multiple championships with different drivers. Yeah. You know, uh, some of them have great longevity, been around for decades and it's, and and been successful in most of those decades. So that to me is the first thing I look for. And as I look at this list of nominees right here, <laughs> there are two, three, four guys <laughs> with all those traits. Yeah. So I'm yeah. telling you, it's going to be a tough call, really tough call. I tell you how tough it is. Dale Jarrett, in our conference call the other day, suggested that could we put Holman Dash Moody in as a single entity. Because John Holman is one right. of those guys eligible for the Hall of Fame. And he, of course, teamed up with Ralph Moody. And I thought, that's not a bad idea. That would allow us to at least give two guys who really worked as one and are hard to separate a chance to get in the Hall of Fame. But Leonard Wood pointed out, and rightly so, that that was not done with the Wood brothers, that he and Glenn... Mm-hmm did not go in as a unit, and he did not think that was necessarily the right thing to do. And as it turned out, they were separated. And Ralph Moody is on the ballot as the mechanical genius behind Holman Moody. Now, John Holman, eventually, I'm sure he'd be listed too. But that kind of tells you how difficult it is to separate the candidates in this class. This is Andy Petrie, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast.
Steve, something really fun that I saw on Facebook last week. Jamie Bishop was the first one that I saw to post it, but it was a list of all the tracks on the circuit now that he'd actually worked at and visited over the years. And Steve, there are currently 23 tracks on the cup circuit. I've been to all 23 and I'm sure that you have been as well. Is that correct? Well, no, really <laughs> not quite. Which one, uh, which one I, are you missing? Well, I have not been in New Hampshire. I have not been to Kansas and I have not been to Kentucky. You've never been to New Hampshire. Oh, never, never stayed on Lake Winnipesaukee. Oh, I came back and all oh. you guys have been up there covering the races for seeing come back and say, great, what a great place. Lake <laughs> is. And I never saw a place. Holy cow. Now that is, that's a shocker to me. Okay. All right. So of the 23 that are on the cup circuit right now, you've been to 20, correct? Correct. Okay. So to uh, expand it a little bit overall, how many tracks did you come up with? You know, Rick, I can say this. I think, I think if I remember, no, I know if I remember correctly of all the tracks that NASCAR's raced on over the years, you know, in the so-called modern era uh-huh. and, and beginning in 1972, I never was at Nashville, your hometown. Oh, <laughs> holy cow. No way. We, we always sent Granger for some reason. <laughs> I was never at Texas World Speedway and okay. never at Ontario. Okay. Neither one of them lasted through the seven. Yes. Yeah. Outside of that, all of them. So did you have a final total, a final number of tracks that you've been to? Well, I'm going to say around 40. Come on, man. You saw that in my notes. <laughs> <laughs> I came up with 40 tracks that I've been to and covered races at and done stories at. And some of the ones that I visited that I'm pretty sure that you didn't, all those Bush Series only tracks that I trekked out to, Pikes Peak out in Colorado. Man, that was one of my favorite tracks to go to. I remember one year went out there and literally landed right in front of a huge hailstorm. As soon as I checked into the hotel, got to my room, there were hailstones coming out of the sky that were as big around as quarters. Memphis Motorsports Park in Memphis, Tennessee, actually the tracks in Millington, loved going to that racetrack because of rendezvous ribs, Milwaukee, Nazareth. Always loved going to Nazareth because every year I would drive up and I would go to, uh, right on my way through. (laughs) That was awesome there. IRP Indianapolis raceway park. That was probably one of my favorite tracks to visit just because of the competition. Yeah. I've Uh, been there. I've been there. Now, did you go to South Boston? Have you ever been to South Boston? Okay. South Boston. See, I was including that in my totals. Okay. Right. South Boston, Franklin County Speedway, Fairway okay. Speedway, Greenville okay. Pickens. I've been to all those. All right. Okay. Or at least one race. Then I also went to Japan for the first exhibition race. You begged me. You begged me to send you to Japan. No, I don't know that I begged. Well, I sure. don't know that I begged, especially after you handed me my coach ticket over there. (laughs) When I volunteered to go to Japan, I thought I was getting a first class ticket. (laughs) And instead I was stuck in the back with, I believe on the way out there, I sat next to Armando Fitz, who was Phyllis' son-in-law. And then on the way back, I sat next to Richard Yates, who was Robert Yates' twin brother. (laughs) 
<laughs> and got to know each other real well for that. Yeah, long place to do that. <laughs> but you went to a number of tracks that are no longer in existence. I know you went to Riverside. Yes, I did. Okay. You said that you didn't go to Texas World, you didn't go to Ontario, but you did travel to Australia. 1988. Yeah. For the, uh, at the uh, Thunderdome in Melbourne, Australia. That was an exhibition race. They brought along a big handful of NASCAR drivers. And, of course, there were several Australian drivers there as well. It was a great race and a lot of fun. And the Australians really enjoyed it. They, we talked to several of them while the race was going on. Unfortunately, I don't think the Thunderdome is still in operation today. But uh, what, a, what an experience that was. And you went with Pappy. Yes, I did. Tom Higgins. <laughs> Australia will never be the same. <laughs> well, we learned a glass of beer is called a pot. <laughs> <laughs> so if you go to the bar and you want a beer, you better order a pot. Because if you order a glass of beer, they're going to think you're kind of strange. If you, I mean, I hope I wasn't too long-winded about that dinner thing. but uh... Steve, that kind of thing is why people listen to this podcast. How many first-person sources are there that can say that Dale Earnhardt sought them out yeah. to go to dinner? Could have talked for quite a while longer, and it would have been perfectly fine. So anytime you have a memory like that, knock yourself out.